Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We sold that and we took a bit of a loss. I think I lost about 10 grand or so on that one. Um, but it wasn't long before I jumped into another duplex project with some friends. Again, it was down in Adelaide. Um, we bought a deceased estate and we just kept it nice and simple. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and in this episode, we're speaking with Brickport founder Richard Williams. This property developer and buyer's agent extraordinary takes us on an edge-of-your-seat trip from his explosive days, literally in the Air Force to the story of how he was hit with a gut-wrenching $60,000 cost in one of his property projects. With a commendable background in property development and being a dedicated buyer's agent himself in Australia's property space, Williams spills the details of what he does and why he's passionate about it. I'm a, a small property developer. Um, that's Property development's always been my passion. I was never particularly taken by, by other strategies or otherwise, though I, I have used and do use some of them um, incorporated into my small developments. But just as a quick background, you know, I'm just your, uh, your average kind of guy that grew up and went to school, went to university, studied engineering, got a job, you know, the 38, 40 hours a week type, type role and bought their first property and then enjoyed this property stuff and really enjoyed it. Um, so I continued on as I went and I've got myself to the stage now where I'm working as a buyer's agent, a project manager, still doing my own projects, which is fantastic. I'm incorporating specialist disability accommodation into my own personal projects, which is a fantastic yield opportunity, um, and I'm holding all those. My focus is on Newcastle and surrounds, and I'm helping other investors with my services as a buyer's agent and project manager, um, just doing small developments. It might be their first development where you know they just want to spend their weekends watching the kids play soccer and watching a bit of Netflix of a nighttime. Um, so, you know, I'm helping those mums and dads out or, you know, those people that just don't know how to do things and they just need someone to hold their hand on the first or second uh, small property purchase and project. Um, and I'm really enjoying that space as well, Tyrone. It's great helping others get into to small property projects and property developments where they can add value and equity right up front. Switching between wearing his small property developer hat and his buyer's agent's hat, Williams definitely takes the bull by the horns with his day-to-day tasks, no matter how challenging they may be. On the buyer's agent front, it's checking what's uh, checking out what's listed at the moment, talking to real estate agents, getting an idea for the properties that are out there. And, you know, they, they say you look at a uh, hundred properties for everyone that you like or put an offer in on. Um, and it's probably true, but it's at times it's really hard to forget where, where I've come from and how much I've learned. Um, because, you know, a lot of those hundred properties, you know, I'm skimming through, 
the portals and realestate.com and a lot of them you don't even bother looking at. Like it's like you, I've got the criteria, I know what I'm looking at, I'm looking for stuff where I can add value, typically in that small development space. Um, so, you know, I'm looking for big backyards, nice access ways down the side of the house. The house is kind of to the front of the block, a little bit to the side. Um, and I'm, I'm getting out there and looking at those properties um, predominantly around Newcastle um, and surrounds. And I'm talking to the agents of those properties. I'm talking to um, other small developers, other people into property, um, getting out and networking, uh, having a chat with some, some mortgage brokers, financial planners, and other people that are in the industry and sort of business owners. Um, yeah, and then I've, I've been really loving putting together little short uh, clips on, on LinkedIn and Facebook lately about when I am at a property, you know, what do I like about it? Where do I see the opportunities with those types of properties? And putting them up on social media so that people are able to see the types of properties I'm looking at. You know, if they want to learn a few things, fantastic. Have a little watch of those. Um, if they're like, hey, I like what you're doing, but I'm not quite sure how you're doing it. Uh, can you help me with something? That's fantastic. I'm, I'm happy to have a chat and maybe, maybe work with people like that. Um, so I guess that's the buyer's agent side of things. And then from the small small developer property developer hat um those days change depending on what i need at, at the time like if i'm getting a da ready to lodge you know i'm talking to the consultants i'm giving them briefs uh you know talking to the designer the engineer uh the town planner making sure that everyone knows knows what our plan is you know chatting with the builder to see what they think the um uh, the cost would be to build that at the moment, chatting with the uh, the real estate agents to check what our sale prices are likely to be. Um, so doing that sort of due diligence and working through that progress. And then, you know, once we've lodged with council on a particular project, you know, that project goes quiet for a few months. Um, council sort of has to get into their inbox. And then once it's in their inbox, you know, they've got to send it out and let the neighbours know for two or three weeks. So nothing's happening in that time. Um, at the moment, though, you know, I've got three villas. They're all specialist disability accommodation up here in Newcastle. Uh, it's a fantastic little project. Um, the gross yield on completion of that one will be over $200,000 a year just on, on three villas, um, hence why I'm liking the uh, the specialist disability accommodation. Um, and, you know, that project's busy with um, with finance at the moment. So, you know, it's putting together finance documents. It's looking for other uh, properties in my portfolio that may need a restructure and a, um, a refinance at the time. Um, it's re working through requests for information from the lender. You know, that includes the lender doing due diligence on the builder. So they're asking me all sorts of questions about the builder and I forward them on to the builder and we have three-way conversations with the lender, the builder and myself. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a process, Tyrone, and you'd think it would be nice and simple and in a way, it is simple, but it's not easy. There's always something else that needs doing. Um, and I guess that's one of the benefits of property and property development. It's kind of like if at times, if you knew how hard it was going to be at times and how things may not go your way, um, maybe you wouldn't do it. But there's great opportunity out there. Of course, before Williams became the successful property developer and investor he is today, 
He was once a young lad who enthusiastically walked the streets of Tasmania, spending as much time as he could outdoors. I grew up in Tasmania, Tyrone, so I spent my first 18 years down on the, the Apple Isle. Yes, it's a nice area. I love going back there for holidays. Um, I don't know that I'd ever go back there to live, though, though never say never, um, but I certainly love going back. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, beautiful countryside and, and I really like it. I've still got family there who I enjoy going back to catch up with. Yeah, I grew up uh, pretty middle class Tyrone. So, you know, there wasn't much extra money to go around. There were certainly no overseas holidays, but uh, we were very lucky and we had a caravan. So for, you know, at least three weeks every summer, we'd take the caravan and we'd we'd go down to a beautiful spot in the world that's now a world famous Freycinet National Park, Coles Bay. Um, and just near Wineglass Bay. And, you know, we'd spend the summer down at, uh, at Freycinet in the caravan and we had some beautiful family holidays down there. Uh, we spent a lot of time with family growing up. Weekends, we'd be visiting either my dad's family or my mum's family. We had uh, a lot of outdoor time um, whenever it snowed. Uh, snow was never around for a great deal of time in Tasmania because, you know, it was snowing one day. And the next day it was windy and raining and the rain had come and washed the snow away. Um, but if it rained and it was a weekend, we'd jump in the car and we'd go up and we'd throw some snowballs and have some snow fights, um, get wet and cold and then jump in the car and turn the heater on and drive back home. So I was very lucky and blessed to have lots of outdoor time growing up. And it was, uh, it was a great spot to grow up. You know, it was fairly quiet in a way, like, you know, the biggest, biggest place I went to, you know, for a lot of the time was Launceston, which was maybe 100,000 people, and where I grew up was 20,000 people. Um, so a, a totally different vibe to sort of Sydney. Williams never thought of growing up in middle class as a hindrance to his success. Frankly, acknowledging the facts of his childhood, he still happily looks back to his past with fondness. I did, certainly didn't grow up around that many people that uh, were hugely successful business owners or many that even had their own businesses you know most of our family friends were were employees middle class and i did get some exposure to property though in that my dad uh, was a plumber and he built his first house at the age of 16 it was called a spec house a, a bit of a specky a speculative house um, and he built it at 16 as a plumber his dad was a brickie um, and he built that and then he sold it and he did a few others along the way um, but probably one of his best uh, projects was a, a light industrial warehouse, um, which he still owns about 40, 50 years after building it uh, in the 80s. Um, he has stories of paying that off when the interest rates were 17 or 18%. Um, but he also had a few bad experiences along the way, things that saw him a bit jaded. So, you know, he never really grew the portfolio and and sort of took advantage of it. The time he got kind of fed up and sick of it was you know, the early 2000s when people from the mainland were, were going across to Tasmania and buying up cheap properties and, you know, the market boomed. Um, probably, unfortunately, a couple of those cheap properties were ones that my dad sold. Um, but it was it was great to get that exposure to property and, you know, dad's helped me along the way with a couple of renovations. Um, he's absolutely fantastic at, on the tools. Um, so that was great. Although his father and grandfather were mainly active in the property space as he was growing up, Williams curiously ventured into the offbeat path of chemical engineering in university, a step that soon led to his stint in the Air Force. And I lived in Tassie till 18. 
um, when I finished year 12 and then after then it was was off to university so I wanted to study chemical engineering and being a smaller place chemical engineering wasn't available in Tasmania so off I went to Melbourne with my bags packed and I studied chemical engineering I guess it was just a quirk of what I liked and, and what I was good at at school Tyrone you know I was really really enjoyed the maths and the chemistry side of things and I knew a couple of civil engineers and structural engineers, but I just didn't see that as being quite right for me. So off I went to study chemical engineering in Melbourne and I lived there for five, five and a half years. And I, I loved my time in Melbourne. It's a, a beautiful city. Um, and whilst I was there, uh, I happened to take on a scholarship and join the Air Force so, you know, not quite where my parents saw me ending up necessarily. Um, but the, uh, the, the appeal of joining the Air Force at the time was that they were going to pay for all my, the rest of my studies. So three years of, of university studies, they were going to pay my hex debts, they were going to give me a salary to finish going to university, and they were going to give me a job for, uh, for the next four years or so after I graduated. And I wasn't quite sure where I was going to go in life and where I was going to end up. Um, there were certainly some of the chemical industries that I didn't want to work in. After graduating as a chemical engineer, I wasn't particularly attracted to the plastics and polymer industries, um, but I did quite like the um, the appeal of the food and, and pharmaceutical industries. <clears throat> but, uh, but instead, yeah, I joined the Air Force and ended up with 20-plus years of, of Air Force time. I, uh, I deployed with the Air Force. Uh, I went across to the UK. I studied a Master's of Engineering, a Master's of Science in Explosive Ordnance Engineering. So I, I guess you could say I'm a uh, an explosives engineer. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> I got to see things blow up. I, I got to go to, to Woomera, to the Outback, and, and see bombs get dropped from planes and see explosions happen. And I even missed, missed a flight or two due to uh, testing positive uh, along the way to explosives on my clothing. So that, that was one of the uh, interesting but, uh, but less fun parts of the job. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed the Air Force and, and it gave me the opportunity to meet some, some great people who, you know, had, had income similar to myself and, and it gave me the opportunity to also buy my first place over in Adelaide uh, which was great. So I, I bought that. I gave it a bit of a renovate, renovation and, and lived in it for, for 10, 10 or so years. Um, and some of the guys from work, one one of the guys from work had done a, a duplex project with a mate of his. And he's like, hey, this went really well. Um, you know, we bought a block of land. We knocked the house down. We built two houses and we sold them and we made some money. Nice. And myself and some others thought that sounded great. We'd love to do the same thing. Um, so having a, a property, it's like, all right, well, I can borrow a bit of money, but I probably can't borrow enough to do a project like that. So half a dozen of us teamed up together and we found an old property to buy, um, which was deserving of being knocked down. Um, and we got the plans to do two duplex or two properties, a duplex. Um, we did that through a project home builder um, so that the builder owned the plans. And then this thing came along called the global financial crisis. Um, and we weren't quite sure what to do. Um, because borrowing the money to do the build got tricky. 
The banks wanted to look at it as a commercial loan for us. And we didn't really know our stuff well enough to go, you know, if we build it, how much money are we going to make? Are we going to make money or are we going to have spent more money than we actually get back out of it? Being an explosives expert in the Air Force didn't mean Williams failed to enjoy life and have fun along the way. In fact, it opened doors for him. Look, I had a few holidays along the way, Tyrone, but they were, you know, annual leave type holidays. I went to Vietnam for four four weeks with a mate of mine. I did a few other trips. Um, I was certainly super lucky to have studied over in the UK for 12 months. Whilst I was there, you know, I had a few weekends in Europe, a week here, a week there. I went snowboarding in Bulgaria for a week. I spent Christmas in Switzerland and then New Year's in France and a few other places. So I had some great opportunities there. But, you know, for most of that time, it was 20 plus years of of working with Air Force and sticking with them. So as far as the property went, it was project on the side. Yeah, that's great. When you said you were with the Air Force, did you actually hop onto the plane and fly with them on the plane or was it actually basically, um, you know, on the ground most of the time because being an explosive experts? No, as far as the job with the Air Force went, I was it was a desk-based position, Tyrone. So as a mostly a safety engineer, assessing the safety of, of explosives and the risks of using them, the risks of keeping them, the risks of storage. Very similar, you know, to what we do with property development and, and the sort of stuff I do now when I'm analysing deals. It's like, you know, what's the risk of something not happening the way we expect it to? It's like if it goes different, is is that okay? Is that still all right? Um, you know, is are we going to lose our pants? Are we going to be able to stay in this deal? Um so it's that same sort of risk assessment methodology that I use now when I'm looking at property. Coming up after the break, we'll learn more about his undeniably unique venture in the Air Force and how it impacted his life in the property space. The military is good like that. They give you a broad range of experiences. They keep moving you, moving you into new jobs and helping you build your skills. How he overcame a harrowing blow in his finances. I think I lost about 10 grand or so on that one. Um, But it wasn't long before I jumped into another duplex project with some friends. How he found himself in a comedy of errors that yielded a lesson he would never forget. There was a whole heap of things that didn't go according to plan, Tyrone. And my head just got filled up and I'm kind of like, I'm stuck in this project. I can't get on the next one. Um, What to do? And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Williams surely used the analytical skills he honed in the Air Force in his own property development journey. In talking about his work in the military, Williams gives us a glimpse into how he exactly sharpened those skills. Work-wise, it was all Air Force time, Tyrone. Though having said that, like the Air Force moved me to new positions and new jobs every two to three years. So whilst I did over 20 years with the Air Force, you know, there was seven, eight jobs, maybe more along the way. You know, I had times where I was looking after life support equipment, working in the maintenance squadron. Um, I had another job where we're looking at at targeting and, and how we would employ the weapons we used. I had other positions where I was buying those weapons. I had times when I was looking at the safety and suitability of those weapons and how long it was safe to keep them for. Um, so there was a real 
breadth of of positions, and and I I generally moved moved to a new job about every three years. So, look, the, the military is good like that. They give you a broad range of experiences. They keep moving you moving you into new jobs and helping you build your skills. They put you on courses and professional development opportunities. Um, so it, it's great in that in that sort of regard. Um, however, for me, property was was always a passion and something that I was always keen to do. And and since you know that first project with with those sort of work colleagues, I've I've continued to do projects either with other people or, or on my own ever since. Excellent. So how how long were you with the Air Force, by the way? Twenty twenty bit over twenty five years. After delving into his first property project with his colleagues, Williams admits it was absolutely nowhere near all roses and rainbows. But he also reveals that nothing would stop him from his passion. I kept doing projects like after that little one with my work colleagues. Look, we, we sold that and we took a bit of a loss. Um, I think I lost about 10 grand or so on that one. Um, but it wasn't long before I jumped into another duplex project with some friends. Again, it was down in Adelaide. Um, we bought a deceased estate and we just kept it nice and simple. It was just myself and, and the couple. Uh, and we did a 50-50 joint venture where we bought the, the property um, we got a project home builder to build two new houses. We got the loan for a house each. We built those houses. We subdivided them. We kept a house each. Fantastic. That was nice and simple. And it's like, right, okay, this this stuff works. I can do it on my own. Um, and then from there, you know, I, I went on and did another little project where it's, I bought a house over in Perth um, that I never saw. I bought it through a buyer's agent and I built two in the backyard um, and I I've retained those properties. Um, they've done all right for me. Um, the last couple of years has been fantastic for the the capital and rental growth on those properties. Um, they've just recently come off fixed uh, fixed rates, um, and the the rates, as for everyone, have jumped fairly significantly. But you know, the the Perth rental market over the last two years has been really strong and had strong growth. So I'm not as concerned about the jump in interest repayments on those properties due to the, the strong rental growth and, and there continues to be strong rental growth on those properties and in Perth in general, like vacancies are so low, um, I'm not particularly fussed about that debt in particular. Interestingly, before stepping into that joint venture with his colleagues, Williams acquired his first property in Adelaide. I purchased a, uh, a primary place of residence, so a house that I was living in. Um, you know, I bought a little character, two-bedroom, ex-housing trust place in Adelaide, only just a couple of kilometres from the city. So that was a, that was my first purchase, and I purchased that for about $174,500 at the time, um, and I lived there for about, about 10 years, kept it for about... 15, 15 or 16 years and then sold that and put the uh, put the money towards my property developments. Oh, excellent. So that first property, was it mainly just uh, obviously for you to live in but did you have any intention to do anything with it like, you know, renovate it or was it just, you know, basically principal place of residence just to start off with? It was my principal place of residence. However, it always needed a slight renovation. Um, the kitchen that was in there when I bought it was pretty average um, but having said that, that was one of the reasons why the price point was within my budget you know had it been fully renovated the purchase price would have been significantly higher and maybe i wouldn't have been able to afford to purchase that property so the intention was always to give it a renovation um, but i didn't really understand anything about zoning about minimum lot sizes 
or anything when I purchased that first property. So the intention on that one was not to develop it. Being a humble man who recognized the impact of his father and grandfather's legacy of hard work in the property industry, Williams confesses that no one else influenced him in venturing further into property. But of course, that didn't stop him. Interestingly, I, I don't recall anyone that was particularly influential in in pushing me towards property or even mentors at the time. Like it was, you know, it was the time of newspapers. It was the time of sitting down Saturday mornings, reading Saturday morning's paper and going, you know, what are the open homes for this weekend? What's available? What can I look at? Um, education on property and what's good about property and how to do things was kind of non-existent or I wasn't aware of it at the time. Um, after I bought that property, you know, I started to become aware of Steve McKnight and a couple of other people in the space. But, you know, I was living in Adelaide. It wasn't exactly a number one tour destination for property educators or anything like that. Um, so, you know, I got along to a few sort of evening seminars and, and kind of learnt what I could. But it wasn't until about 2013 or so that I sort of really got into property education and and found some mentors in property and, and other people that were doing similar things. Like, you know, I, I moved to Sydney and I started going along to property education events as well as some that you, you could probably describe as, you know, property sales evenings where people had a product to sell. Um, and, you know, I, start, I started finding people and, you know, I just start chatting to people and I'd, I'd grab their phone numbers and stuff and, you know, I started to put together my own little book of, people I wanted to hang out with, people that seemed like they were doing property things as well. And, and you know, I, I suppose from there I progressed to actually organising property meetups in Sydney. Um, you know, I'd go along to other people's meetups and, and hear the presenters that they they organised. Um, and I'd, I thought, you know, there's people I want to learn from myself. So, you know, let me put together a crowd and an audience that they would want to speak to. Um, so I started organising my own events, but, you know, that wasn't really until 2014, 2015. So, you know, I was already 13 or so years into property um, by then. So the first first 10 years or so was really just kind of bumbling along, learning what I could as I could from, from people that I could ask questions of. But I, I didn't know the questions to ask everyone. I didn't know how to do things. You know, I just those first couple of developments we we learned as we as we went we didn't know how to do things um, I didn't know any builders to ask at the time it was it was an interesting journey I, I certainly could have done a lot better um, but I but I didn't do bad either um, I lost a little bit of money in a couple of those and I always felt that things happened slower than I wanted them to um, but I did get to the end end of the projects and, and they worked out well Williams may have stumbled through the first 10 years of his property development journey, but he learned as he went through all the ups and downs and one particular challenging experience during that time stands out for him. After I'd done those projects, I <clears throat> I, tr I tackled a project that was a little bigger, Tyrone. It was a 10 townhouse project. Um, it was the amalgamation of three properties. Um, it was two properties plus the backyard of a third, um, creating a a fourth block, which was a battle axe property behind the, the three front street frontage houses. Um, it was in Newcastle. It was about 2014 that I acquired it or so. Um, and I was looking for someone to, to work with, someone 
that knew stuff and could help me and help me move forwards quicker. Um, and unfortunately, I, I picked the wrong person as a, a project manager to work with. Um, the deal was kind of set up as a, as a joint venture, as a profit share when it went really well, as it was, of course, it was going to, you know, they were, they stood to make a, a percentage of the profit at the end of the project, um, which they were happy with. And, you know, that worked for me. Um, and they were going to do a bit more of the management work, although I was going to do some as well. Um, and that was quite a, a challenging site and a challenging time. Um, and I, and I, I say the word time, you know, the biggest lesson from that project is the value of time. Like I think I was wrapped up in that project for four to five years um, because the subdivision works took me, you know, three to four years. It took me almost a year to get through council. Um, and then there was once we were on site, so the, the subdivision works had, or the works had to be done before council will allow the property to be subdivided. Um, so the property had quite a bit of slope on it. Um, it was in a suburb near the university in Newcastle. And we started to go through a bit of a property boom around, you know, 2013, 2014. But at the same time, and this is what I missed, one of the things I missed on the due diligence was that the local university had just wasn't far off bringing hundreds of rooms online for students. So when those rooms did come online, lots of the university students that were living in, you know, the share houses and, you know, potentially the illegal boarding houses nearby decided to go and live on campus. So lots of the homeowners or the investors that had properties in the area that had had, you know, full occupancy for quite a while, all of a sudden had a couple of spare, couple of empty rooms. So some of those property investors thought, you know, we've had some really good times. Let's just pop our properties on the market and we'll go and do something else. We'll go and buy another property somewhere different. So those property investors put their properties on the market and the suburb price stayed fairly flat. And it stayed flat, you know, a year or two whilst the rest of Newcastle and other areas were booming. So when you're sitting on a development project and your sales prices are staying flat, it's like, hmm, well, my site's not going up in value. That's a bit of a, a problem. But because we're in a booming market, the cost of building was also going up. You know, tradies were in demand. Builders had plenty of work on. They could pick and choose the jobs they wanted to do. They looked at my property and they're like, well, there's a bit of slope on this one. So they're like, well, we'll just put a bit of a premium on the job. And if you choose to do it with us, fantastic. And if you don't, have a great day. So the cost of building the development was going up. The sales value of the development was staying flat you know, for the margin to stay in there, that meant that the land value was going down. Um, so that wasn't a great position to be in. Uh, there were some further complexities in that I had to do what's called underwater major works. So I had to go in and dig up the old uh, concrete sewer pipes and replace them with new PVC pipes. And, and I knew we needed to do it. It wasn't unexpected. It cost a little bit more than we had budgeted. Um, I think it ended up costing about $50,000. We budgeted about $35,000, $40,000. But there was a stormwater pipe belonging to council that was closer to the surface than um, anticipated. 
and that pipe needed to be replaced in its entirety. Um, so that was about $20,000. But before we could work out which path we were going to take with that, we needed to go to the engineers and go, well, can you do a design to put the pipe in a different location? Or, you know, should we leave it there and encase it with concrete? So you've got to get a couple of proposals from the engineer. Then you take those proposals to the builder and the builder costs them up and then gives you an answer. And then you pick one of the answers and proceed from there. So each of these little things slowed the project down. Um, in addition to that, there was this beautiful four car garage behind one of the properties that had to go um, because that's where three of the townhouses were going to sit. Um, the lovely couple that owned that property, um, he'd worked for the council in the 80s as a tip truck driver and he'd got some fill from somewhere and he popped it under his shed because the, the property sloped to the back. So he'd built his, uh, his garage up. So he came down his drive and then went into his shed. That had asbestos contamination in it, and that cost me about $60,000 to clean up that asbestos contamination. Wow. So it was a bit of a, a comedy of errors. And then the project managers started to get a bit of a sniff that, hey, this isn't quite going according to plan. Maybe we're not going to make a massive profit here, and maybe, well, if we don't make a profit, we're not going to get paid anything. Um, so they started to, you know, lose interest and and the relationships between the, the existing landowners, the people who were going to purchase their properties because they'd been purchased under option, those sort of relationships between the project managers and, and the, the property owners deteriorated um, because the property owners are like, hey, when's, when are you going to exercise the options? You know, property prices are going up and we're a little concerned we're going to get priced out of the market out of spots we'd like to move to. So there was a whole um, heap of things that didn't go according to plan, Tyrone, and my head just got filled up and I'm kind of like, I'm stuck in this project. I can't get on to the next one. Um, what to do? Um, the project managers put a caveat on the property um, and I'm kind of like, well, you know, I just need to clear my head. I'd like to actually sell the property. I, I I knew that in selling it, I was going to take a significant loss, um, multiple six-figure loss. You know, it really slowed me down by a number of years. Like the um, the money I'd made from buying my my principal place of residence, you know, fifteen years earlier, um, all that money and more was unfortunately lost on that one project. Um, but I bought myself a whole heap of lessons, quite a bit of stress at the time. But as I was explaining to a friend of mine, I'm like, you know, I probably don't get as stressed about little things these days because, you know, once you've lost half a million dollars and you wake up the next morning, it's like the fact that something small is not going quite according to plan, it's like, yeah, whatever, we'll, we'll fix that, that's okay. Richard Williams' story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. He divulges how he finally got out of his stressful joint venture project after almost five years. Whilst I took a loss, it, it cleared my head, it moved, moved me away from that project and put me in a good space. What his bold perspective is on property development? Some people look at development and they say, oh, isn't that risky? I'm like, isn't it more risky to buy an apartment and just wait for the market to go up? 
He opens up about the mindset shift that took him from thinking like an employee to viewing things through the lens of a successful property developer. For me, it's been quite a journey from engineer and employee to, you know, business owner, self-employed, and then, you know, building a, a brand and a business and and doing my own projects as well. And that's next time on Property Investory. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.